Welcome to a public lecture podcast from the University of Bath. I'm very happy to be here today. I'm going to give a bit of an overview of what, we, what my research is about and also sort of how I got to where I am now. Um, and I've called my talk From Micelles to Materials because we're interested in going all the way from the fundamentals of understanding micelles all the way through to making some useful materials. But first, before I start on the sort of science, often when I'm lecturing, there's a small group of people somewhere in the back rows who sort of sit and discuss furiously at various points. And uh, at, through the, the lecture course that I give, and usually to second years, there'll be increasing agitation in this back row. And finally, one of them will be nominated to come and ask me a question. Well, what is it that has been troubling them all this time? And the question usually starts with, uh, Karen, We've been placing bets. Where is your accent from? <laughs> so I was born in uh, Ottawa, Ontario. My parents then moved to Toronto when I was quite young. We moved to Perth when I was seven and spent about five years there before moving to Sydney. I did my PhD in Canberra, did a postdoc in the US at Ithaca, upstate New York, and finally ended up in the UK. So I think my accent probably comes from about there. <laughs> so... Uh, my parents, uh, one, my father's an electrical engineer and my mother's a physio, and so fairly early on it was obvious that I was interested in science. The question was, uh, what kind of science would I take up? So from a very young age, I had interests in sort of botany and zoology, uh, pulling flowers apart to see what was inside them. And by teenage years, I'd moved on a bit to sort of chemistry, was interested enough in chemistry to spend my summers uh, at the University of New South Wales summer school taking uh, micrographs of rust. Uh, but by the time I got to the end of high school, uh, I had been on an AIDC National Summer Science School, again in the summer holidays, and they'd taken us, a bunch of us, to Mount Stromlo Observatory, which we thought was great. There were all these huge telescopes and really exciting physics going on. And we used things like spectrometers to find the lines in the hydrogen spectrum. I also had the fortunate uh, chance to actually attend an all-girls state high school uh, where we had a very large physics class and a very supportive physics teacher and no one had told us at this stage that girls don't do science, particularly that girls don't do physics, although I will admit that the uniform has rather scarred me for life and it's taken me a long <laughs> while to actually wear pink again. So by the time I went to Sydney Uni to do my undergraduate degree, I was fully confirmed that I was going to be a physicist and probably an astronomer. Unfortunately, well, maybe fortunately for me, when you enter a science degree in Australia, you actually do several subjects. You don't sign up to do chemistry or physics. Uh, so in my first year, I was doing chemistry, physics, maths, and law. And the physics department is housed in this lo lovely building. But unfortunately, at the time at least, the physics lecturers there were all rather of the old school who sort of mumbled against the board and talked to their shoes whereas the chemistry lecturers did demonstrations and burnt hydrogen bubbles and had uh, fluffy orbitals that they waved around in the class and were far more engaging and interesting. So I'm afraid at that point, my ambitions to be a physicist rather died an early death. And I instead, in second year, took double chemistry and maths and law and uh, moved to the chemistry department, which has such an ugly building, it's really difficult to find photos of it on the web. Um, and of course, at the time when I entered high school, I'd also had a bit of a hankering to study some history. At the time, Sydney Uni didn't offer a combined arts-science degree, although they do these days, but I could do science law. And so by doing law, I also got a heavy dose of philosophy, economics, history, and a large amount of information about the way our society works, which was absolutely fascinating, but there was no way I was going to do a whole bunch of conveyancing as a career. So as I was doing my law degree, I actually spent quite a lot of time working in the labs and uh, as you'll see that sort of influenced my, my path in the future. So what do I actually do for research? Um, well you saw me blowing bubbles earlier. I'm very interested in, in soft matter, in uh, molecules which organise themselves. So what actually is a bubble? Well of course it's soap and water and air. And if you look really closely, or if you could look really closely at a bubble, then you'd find that it's made up of molecules which are self-organized in the uh, perimeter of the bubble. So you have a, a very thin layer of water here, maybe 100 nanometers across. And these soap molecules are organized so that they're partially in the surface of the bubble and partially out from the, the edges of the bubble. And 
These soaps belong to a class of molecules called surface active molecules, and that's usually shortened to the term surfactants. So surfactants um, are these molecules which have two parts. So they're going to organize themselves at interfaces and in water. They have a head group which contains only polar groups, and that part likes to interact with water. It can bond with the hydrogen, water-hydrogen bonding network. It also has a, a tail, which is nonpolar, which is full of uh, methyl groups. And that part doesn't like to interact with water, or more specifically, the water doesn't like to act, interact with it. Water likes to be hydrogen bonded with other water molecules, and if it can't fulfill those hydrogen bonding um, networks, then it will try and push the molecule that is disrupting the network out of the water to the interface. And so in this talk, I'm going to talk about surfactants, and they're largely um, described as little tadpole-like things with a spherical head and a uh, long tail. And this interaction with the water-hydrogen bonding network, known as the hydrophobic effect, means that they start to align themselves at interfaces so that the tails, um, the oily bits that are disrupting the water network, are all pushed out towards the interface, and the polar parts of the molecule um, can actually uh, interact with the, the, the water. Now, this drive to interact at the interface is quite strong and is the basis of a lot of... Uh, the, the self-assembly that I'm going to be talking about. So I can demonstrate exactly how effective this is by putting some rather large particles at the air-water interface here. So this is just pepper. So I don't need a safety form for pepper. <laughs> and if I put it at the surface of the water here, you can see that it sits quite happily on the surface. These are fractions of a millimetre-sized particle but if I then add just a drop of surfactant, and this is just dishwashing liquid, then you can see, if I can get it to drip, that the adsorption of those molecules to the interface is sufficiently strong that just single molecules orienting themselves at the interface is strong enough to actually push those macroscopic pepper particles out of the way um, and... Uh, force them to go to the sides of the dish. So the centre of that dish is now completely covered in a monolayer of surfactant, um, preventing the pepper particles from diffusing around on the surface of the dish. So what happens then if I have a higher concentration of surfactant in that solution? Well, obviously, if I've got enough surfactant, I'll fill up that interface completely and the molecules therefore need somewhere else to go. Um, and one option for them is to actually form their own aggregates in the middle of the solution. And this is just another way of avoiding having to interact with that water-hydrogen bonding network. And of course, uh, that means that these things uh, organise themselves into these spherical objects because that gives you uh, the best surface area to volume ratio for hiding as much of those hydrocarbon tails away from the water-hydrogen bonding network protected by the polar head groups of the, um, the surfactant molecules, and those are known as micelles. So those things tend to be spherical at low concentrations. They're about between uh, 15 to uh, 30 angstroms in radius, and they contain between 50 and 150 molecules. But we're not just limited to spheres. If you uh, take an uh, increasing concentration gradient for surfactants, you can go from spherical micelles just randomly arranged in the solution, you increase the concentration a bit, they're forced to pack together and so you end up with a cubic phase where the, the micelles are on the, the sides and edges of a cube. If you keep going, you uh, start to join up those micelles and they become a hexagonal phase. And this is quite an important phase because I'm going to talk a lot about 2D hexagonal phases. Uh, they're called hexagonal because if you draw a hexagon around the outer edge or the inner edges of the micelles, there you can see that the packing there uh, is in a hexagonally close pack phase. Keep going, you go through a cubic phase of twisted uh, micelles and then to a lamella phase. And obviously drawing the lamella phase like that is not particularly energetically favourable because you have all of these exposed hydrocarbon tails at, uh, at the edges of the water here. And so if you have an isolated lamella in water, it tends to curl itself around and form a closed structure um, with a bilayer of surfactant on water on the outside and on the inside. Of course, that's a vesicle. So 
these days, we can actually follow the uh, formation uh, transitions between these different phases as you increase the concentration by evaporation. And in this case, we actually used uh, X-ray reflectivity and grazing incidence, small angle diffraction, to follow the changes as this spray-coated solution on the surface of this wafer dries. And you can see we start with a bit of a ring. It develops into spots. And then as the time goes on, we can see that the structure is changing. So this took about 30 minutes in total to watch, essentially watching paint dry, um, but very nicely structured paint. Uh, and so we can actually now use modern instrumentation to follow these reactions in real time to see how the, the structures are changing. So what was happening there was we were going, as the film dried, from uh, my cells in solution, which give us just a very, very diffuse ring. You probably might not have even been able to see it at the beginning there. It close packs into the cubic phase, and those uh, micelles along particular axes in the cubic phase join up to form the hexagonal phase um, of, of the, the structures. So I'm going to cover a few different uh, reasons now, um, or th the topics of my research. And they're basically, basically based around this self-assembly that is caused by surfactant and surfactant-like objects in solution. And so I've got four reasons why I find surfactants particularly interesting. Um, and the first one is looking at chemical reactions in micelles. So when I did my uh, bachelor's degree in Sydney Uni, in the fourth year, you take a year out from uh, actually studying subjects uh, and you do a complete year of research. There's no exams at the end of it, just a, a research project uh, which, which is finished with a thesis and a, um, a viva. So in that particular project, I was studying emulsion polymerization, and this is a really nice example of reactions in micelles where you have surfactant micelles in solution, a growing polymer chain that's sitting inside the surfactant micelle because it's also hydrophobic and doesn't like the water, and the constraint between feeding material into the micelle and the size of the micelle makes you uh, end up with very uniform particles. So the micelle is essentially acting as a nanoreactor. So what I was trying to do was uh, swell some existing polymer particles with a um, monomer, carry out the polymerization reaction. It was a free radical reaction, so these things are extremely reactive with everything, including monomers and oxygen and themselves, and try and measure the rate of propagation of the uh, polymerization reaction. So here you can see the, the polymer particles that I made. They're all nicely, pretty nicely uniform because they're templated on these micelles that are grown inside the, the micelles. And this rather Heath Robinson kind of bit of kit here was all designed so that we could carry out this emulsion polymerization reaction, siphon off a bit of the reaction as it was going, freeze it quickly, and get it into the, an ESR spectrometer uh, where we could measure radicals without exposing anything to oxygen. So the idea was that I would measure the radical concentration by measuring the ESR or EPR signal here, um, and that's a methyl methacrylate radical signal, which is beautiful. Unfortunately, most of the time I spent measuring those sorts of signals because the oxygen had got in. And so I had a rather frustrating final year project, and I was aiming to reproduce the uh, nice dark uh, spots there with the line through them, or at least the, the open squares, which had been a um, previous uh, PhD student's efforts at, at this sort of measurement. But my measurements were the ones in the, in the dark triangles. Um, so I was essentially a pretty good random number generator. So if there's any project students out there who feel that their final year project has not gone particularly as well as they would have hoped this year, let them be reassured that it's not a barrier to an academic career. <laughs> <laughs> so after finishing my law degree, I had decided that I was actually very interested in uh, science and would like to continue a scientific career, but really emulsion polymerization wasn't for me. And uh, I had met uh, Dr. Uh, Greg Waugh, who was a um, surfactant researcher at the University of Sydney. Um, and he said, his advice to me was, well, really, you ought to go somewhere else for your PhD. And he had had me making cubic phases over the summer, um, which I had found quite interesting. And so he suggested that I talk to John White uh, and also Barry Ninnam at the Australian National University. But after due consideration, I decided that I would work with John White, who's this gentleman here in typical pose. He officially retired about five years ago, but he still looks like that. Um, he's still to be found in front of a computer uh, typing out papers and things. He suggested to me that the topic of biomineralization would be quite an interesting one to work on as a PhD project. And the idea here is that 
humans can make these spherical silica particles, um, so SiO2, which is glass, uh, very easily. But nature, these diatoms actually make these beautiful structures where you have pores and, and networks of silica, and they're all templated on biological molecules such as proteins and lipids. Also, at about the same time, or just the year before I was considering all of this, there had been a letter published in Nature by a bunch of scientists from Mobile who had showed that you could actually use surfactant micelles as a template to generate these porous materials. And so I found that was quite an interesting sort of topic. And my PhD was looking at how we could optimize the synthesis of these porous materials based around growing silica into, around the, these micelles. We um, optimized the structure so that uh, we could get a lot of diffraction peaks in an X-ray crystallographic pattern and solved the uh, structure of the network of silica around these micelles. We also looked at doing some of the first experiments of absorption of hydrogen and, and methane onto these um, for gas storage applications. Um, but what I found really interesting in all this project was actually the mechanism part. So at the time, in 1996, there were two sort of ways that you could make this material. You could either use a very concentrated surfactant solution so that you already had, for instance, the 2D hexagonal phase present. But these solutions are really very viscous. And so the potential for forming them into nice um, spherical particles, for instance, or making films, uh, is, it makes it quite difficult to handle. But if you infiltrate silica in there, then the, um, the silica interacts nicely with the micelles and you pretty much get what you started with. That's also a bit dull. I was far more interested in the other route, which is actually more commercially viable because surfactants are quite an expensive uh, ingredient when you're talking about building porous materials uh, for catalysis and gas absorption. You want the, everything to be as cheap as possible. So if you can use less surfactant to make the material, then uh, it becomes far more industrially interesting. And if you put a silica source in with your surfactant in starting off with very dilute solutions, you actually end up with the same structures, even slightly better ordered than you do if you start with a really high concentration. And so I was very interested uh, in what's happening in this magic step between the interaction of the silica uh, with the surface of the micelles. So this question has uh, one that is, is still of interest today, um, and I'm going to talk a little bit more about it. But this is the second reason why I'm finding surfactants particularly interesting, because if we can understand the formation pathways of uh, the interaction between micelles and other materials, it's going to let us make new materials, new porous materials via these templating roots. So the other question is, well, how do we actually study these materials? This is a particularly difficult size range um, to measure uh, because if you have actually crystalline materials built up of molecules in a nice repeating lattice, you can get very, very detailed information using X-ray crystallography about the exact position of every atom relative to the molecule and how they're arranged in space. On the other hand, if you're looking at something like bacteria or, or even viruses, then you can stick them under an optical microscope or an SEM and take pictures of them. In this size range, between sort of one nanometer and about 100 nanometers, it becomes much more difficult to obtain similar quality information. Um, if you have a dry sample, you can stick it under an electron microscope and take images of it. But I'm interested in wet systems, so things where things are reacting, where I've got soft surfactant micelles um, and chemistry actually happening. So the techniques that we're using to study these are small angle X-ray and neutron scattering and also at interfaces by reflecting X-rays and neutrons from those interfaces. And so about when I started my PhD, did my PhD interview, my uh, potential supervisor at that stage said, oh, and, and do you have a passport? And I said, yes, but thought no more of it. Started my PhD in February, new academic year in, in Australia. And about April, he said, oh, you, are you doing anything in the next month? Well, we need to go to the UK and the US because we need to go and do a neutron scattering experiment at Howell and then one in Chicago. And you don't mind, do you? <laughs> so to an Australian, 21-year-old Australian, 23-year-old Australian, um, this was a great opportunity. Not only did I get to do exciting science, I got to travel. And uh, so ever since then, my career has been built around traveling and using these large-scale facilities at uh, Harwell, 
Um, of course, that's rather more local to us now. Uh, we also use the ESRF and ILL in Grenoble in France, but at the time, Australians didn't really have ready access to either of those facilities, so we went to Chicago to use the IPNS, uh, which is sadly no longer in operation, and we also did uh, X-ray scattering in Japan at the Photon Factory. So uh, we use these large um, facilities in order to probe these rather tiny length scales. So how does small angle scattering work? Well, it's basically what it says on the tin. You're looking at the scattering of radiation at, at close to the straight through beam. So if I have a beam coming through my instrument here, I need to block the direct beam because it's very intense. The scattering is rather weak on either side of the direct beam. And if I have a sample that's full of very small objects, then my scattering will be at relatively wide angles. If I then want to look at a, a sample which has uh, rather larger objects, then the um, angle at which it scatters is going to be rather smaller. And that's the important thing to remember in this talk. The only equation I'm going to show is that the angle of scattering Q is proportional to 2 pi over the distance. So bigger distances mean smaller angles, smaller distances mean bigger angles. And if I want to measure even larger structures and my uh, angle is uh, too close to and hitting the beam stop, then I need to move the detector back so that I can actually um, see the smaller angles, which means that some of these instruments are incredibly long. So this is D11 at the ILL. My collaborator, uh, Ralph Schweins, he's a guy sort of about this tall for scale, and that instrument is 40 metres long. The detector can move anywhere from 1.5 metres from the sample position all the way to 40 metres down the back of the hall there. And that allows us to measure a huge uh, range of different structural sizes uh, using neutron scattering. So after I'd done my PhD, um, I had decided that uh, it would be interesting to continue uh, in, in research. I wasn't at this stage completely convinced that I wanted to, uh, a completely academic career, but again, the chance was offered to me to go to the US, and I went to Cornell University and actually got to work in a physics department, so I did eventually achieve my aim to at least uh, partially interact with physicists. Um, and I was working with Professor Sol Gruner, who is the director of the Cornell Synchrotron Chess, which is actually built underneath one of their running tracks here on the Cornell campus. Um, so in the same way as a person running around the running track here has to slow down and lose a bit of energy on the corners, electrons being excited around the synchrotron ring as they turn the corner have to lose a bit of energy and that's emitted as x-rays and those x-rays are what we use uh, to do the scattering experiments. Now the idea here was to continue some work both using scattering and using the idea of templating, but in this time instead of using a, a concentrated surfactant phase to get these pores, we wanted to use something called the L3 or sponge phase, and this is an attempt at drawing it. It's a very um, random kind of phase. It doesn't give a very nice scattering pattern, just a broad bump. But the idea is that it has a bilayer of surfactant, and in between these pores here are just filled with water. So if we could coat the surface of those bilayers with silica, solidify the whole thing in glass, all we'd have to do is pour out the water and we'd have our porous material. Unfortunately, this one didn't work particularly well either. So it turns out that you have to have a, quite a lot of salt in there to get the correct curvature to get the sponge phase. And once you have a lot of salt in there, that competes with the silica for interactions um, with the, the surfactants. But it was a, a really interesting time. I got to learn how to build a small angle beam line um, and how to solder. I exchanged knowledge with someone who needed to know how to use a volumetric flask. So it seemed to me a fair swap. Um, and in 1999, my now husband, also finally finished his PhD at the ANU, and we were looking for somewhere to go to do postdocs that we might actually be able to live in the same city for a while because it had been about two years since we had. So uh, I wrote to Steve Mann, he's a big name in the area of surfactant templating, and said, have you got any um, positions available for um, someone who's done scattering and templating? I'd be quite interested to learn a bit more inorganic chemistry. And he said, well, you know, I've just got this grant with Steve Rosa, um, it's lots of scattering and it involves templating, perhaps you'd be interested. So I signed up to this and we arrived in, or I arrived in Bath in May 99, when we were still in the old 4 West building which is shown there. Um, shortly after that in the summer we actually moved into the brand new 1 South building, as you can see it nice and shiny new there with very small trees in front of it. Um, and uh, I took a, this position which required me to actually commute um, two days a week to Bristol to work with Steve Mann's group. 
and spend the other three days a week in Bath. After a few months of this, uh, Steve suggested to me it would be a really good idea if I actually applied for one of these Dorothy Hodgkin Research Fellowships because that would let me to do independent research um, and start uh, get away from this endless commuting. Um, and so following his advice and with the help of, oh, that's Steve in his uh, natural environment <laughs> at the top of a French mountain, um, I applied for and, and received the Dorothy Hodgkin Royal Society Fellowship, which did allow me to set up uh, my own research group. And the idea here was to actually now study the mechanisms of formation of these particular um, silica surfactant films, because we thought there could be several different ways it could form. We've got this layer of surfactant at the surface. Maybe the silica um, binds to it and these things curl up like little snails to form the structure. Or maybe they form layers at the interface which then split. Or maybe they form particles and uh, maybe the particles go to the surface to form the films. So we used, went to the ESRF at the, as it was the only synchrotron available to us at that time and carried out some experiments to study the formation of these films. So the system that we're looking at so as simple as we could make it, it has the templating surfactant, a little bit of acid to catalyze the process, and a silica source. Um, if you do this reaction under alkaline conditions, you get a powder. If you do it under acidic conditions, you get a thin film that grows at the interface. And it has a beautifully well-ordered diffraction pattern corresponding to these close-packed hexagonal micelles. Um, the interesting thing, and a lot of science is sparked by noticing something a bit odd, the odd thing here was that if you increase the amount of silica in your reaction mix, initially, as you would expect as you increase the concentration of something, the, the reaction speeds up, you get the film faster. However, if you keep going, then it starts to slow down. And it, we thought this was kind of weird. Why should the reaction get slower when uh, we keep increasing the concentration? So when we went to the ESRF, the first problem is, of course, how are you going to get a reflection off a uh, open liquid interface. And this is the solution that they have these days at Diamond on IO7. If you uh, diffract your X-ray beam, incoming X-ray beam through two silicon crystals, which are the yellow objects there, you can actually direct the beam um, ver uh, down onto a, onto a sample surface, which is the blue object in the middle. And by tilting those two crystals relative to each other, you can direct the angle of the beam onto the, the sample surface and then hopefully into your detector. So if you can get your X-ray beam onto the surface, what did we see? Well, this is a, a linear detector looking at the surface in a time-resolved fashion. And when we have an open interface, clean surface, no film, we just see a reflection. So we see a reflected beam of light, same as you see a reflection from a mirror. If your mirror gets rough or dirty or scratched, then you stop seeing as clear a reflection. And that's what happens when the film starts to grow. The reflected peak here disappears. We no longer have a good reflection, but we now we start to have a signal coming from the structure of the um, film at the interface. And from the first moment that we could see this structure, we could see really sharp peaks. And if you remember, um, narrow, uh, small angles and, and sharp peaks mean large objects in X-ray speak. So that means that the particles here had to be forming in the solution and coming up to form the film because they were already big when we could first start to see them. The other thing is, of course, the film was getting very rough. And if you take big lumpy particles and start packing them at the interface, of course, that's going to give you a rough surface. So we thought that was great. Now we understand the mechanism. We can write the paper. We can go home. Now, of course, when this was the first experiment we did at the synchrotron, we picked the fastest forming film. So this is right at the bottom of that U-shaped curve. When we went back six months later for our next experiment, we decided we'd actually investigate this slow filming film. And of course, now you can see we saw something completely different. This time, although the, the reflection does disappear eventually, we've still got a substantial reflection at the point where we can start to see the film forming. And the peaks here are really broad. So that means that the film is starting really thin and getting thicker and eventually getting rougher but it's a much smoother film in this case than it was before. So we had a hypothesis that um, the film, if the film is growing from particles, we ought to be able to see those particles in the solution underneath. And so we did a small angle scattering experiment. And indeed, we could see that there are particles in the solution which grows fast. 
Um, it has this nice little diffraction peak corresponding to the aggregates. And in the solution, which was growing slowly, it had these really elongated micelles. They sort of changed shape with time, but they definitely didn't aggregate. And so they were big objects that took much longer to diffuse to the interface. Now, this was kind of interesting behavior in inorganic materials, but it actually reflected quite well some behavior that's very well known in the polymer field. And when you polymerize silica in an acidic system, it grows in a very branched dendritic way. So saying that it looked like a polymer was not um, that stupid. And we thought that maybe we could make an analogy between what happens in polymer surfactant systems with what's happening in our polymer silica, surfactant silica system. So if you have a positively charged surfactant and a negatively charged polymer, you mix them with too much surfactant, it's going to stay overall negatively charged and they'll repel each other and they'll stay soluble. If you have too much polymer, uh, positively charged species over here, they interact, um, they're charged and so they repel each other and they stay stable. If you're in the middle where you've exactly balanced the charge on the two objects, then of course they'll be neutral and they start to coagulate together, forming these phase separated lumps of material which can have a lovely structure. And so if our dual formation mechanism was in operation, maybe we might be able to make a film with the same properties as the silica film if we used an appropriate polymer that had a similar branched dendritic structure. And so, of course, I wouldn't be talking about this if it didn't work, but I hope that I might even be able to show you the growth of a polymer surfactant film. So starting with a polymer solution and a surfactant solution. Trying not to get too many bubbles in it. Now, if we leave that sit there for a little while, in a few minutes, I will return. And we should hopefully be able to see the film. So these films grow at the air water interface as long as the uh, container is open. If you close it, nothing happens. Um, the the uh, films have a lovely ordered mesostructure. So if you use a very high molecular weight polymer, then you get uh, something which looks like a badly cooked plate of spaghetti. It has twisted tubes going in all directions, but they are roughly the same size, so they give you a ring in the scattering pattern. If you have a very low molecular weight polymer, then uh, you get this rather well, more well-ordered um, 2D hexagonal phase with all the rod-like micelles uh, lined up next to each other. If you cross-link the film, it becomes very thick and you can actually pull it from the surface of the solution where it was grown and a new film will form. So you can repeatedly um, make these films uh, and, and regenerate them if you uh, break them while they're still on the surface. You can also pull them off and dry them and this is just the uh, mesh that you get when you buy a duty-free bottle, so reuse and recycle. Um, we cut them up and, and use them to pull our polymer surfactant films off the interface. Um, we can control the structure that's in these films. If we pick micelles that are particularly spherical, uh, then we'll end up with a uh, micellar cubic phase in the film with close-packed micelles. If we pick ones that are elongated, then we can show that the scattering pattern that we get corresponds to the 2D hexagonal. And if we have layered films, then of course they're going to give you a layered, uh, layered micelles and they're going to give you a layered structure in the films. And we have looked at a lot of potential applications, but I don't have time to go through all of that here. We've looked at encapsulation and release of, of potential therapeutic materials. We've looked at using them as sensor supports. And the one thing I did want to mention is that we've used them to uh, template uh, inorganic films. So we're actually f coming full circle. If we put the silica mineralizing agent into the um, uh, film forming solution with the surfactant and the polymer, now we get a nice thick film growing on the air water interface. We can lift it off on our mesh and dry it and then calcine it. And this has been of particular interest because I was approached recently by a bunch of physicists in Milan who are working at CERN who actually wanted to make a positron to positronium converter. So you're going from E plus to a uh, E plus E minus sort of atom. And you can do that by bouncing 
positrons off silica. So if you can have a really thin film with lots of surface area, so pores around 8 nanometers and a film thickness of about 4 microns, you might be able to make a positronium beam by smashing positrons into one side of the film. Um, so far, we managed to make the film with freestanding with no support. It has a pore diameter of about 5 nanometers, but it's about 100 microns thick. And these films are so lightweight that if the poor student, the first time he opened the oven, when he was trying to manufacture these things, the, the gust of wind that, as he opened the oven door was sufficient to send the film flying across the lab and smashing on the floor. So we have some issues around fragility, but uh, we think we're getting there to being able to help the physicists with the, the need for a positron, to positronium converter. So the other thing that is related to the templating work Ah, and you can see now that we have a nice film grown here at the interface, you can see the wrinkles of the film um, reflecting the light, I hope. Um, I'll leave it there to grow a bit thicker. Um, but as the film grows thicker, it starts to, to wrinkle and um, you can see the reflection of those um, ripples. So after all this work on silica, you might think that... Um, this is getting a little dull because silica is a pretty inert material. It doesn't do very much. And it would be much more interesting if we could make porous materials out of um, titania or zinc oxide or cerium oxide or iron oxides, which actually have photocatalytic photo activity or can be used as themselves as active catalysts. And so we started to look at finding a solvent in which we could still have surfactant micelle assembly, um, but where we could get away from water because the problem with producing most of these materials is that the precursors are very reactive with water. And so we've started to look at a different highly hydrogen bonded solvent, which are the deep eutectic solvents. These are a type of ionic liquid. You mix two solids and you get a liquid and they're much less toxic than um, ionic liquids and they have um, very strong hydrogen bonding and they're made of uh, common components such as choline chloride and urea or choline chloride and glycerol. We've shown that we can make... Um, uh, nanoparticles in these deputectic solvents and in fact the solvent structure actually helps organize the ions in the solvent so that we can do these syntheses at much lower temperatures and without the presence of uh, highly alkaline uh, materials that you might need if you were trying to do this in water and uh, if you can make nanoparticles then the next step is maybe to show that we could do some porous materials. So um, the first thing we needed to show though is that whether or not surfactants can actually aggregate in these materials and to do that, we use surface tension. So this is measuring the, in, the surfactants arriving at the interface of these solvents. And you can see that they're actually even a bit more effective than water at pushing the surfactants out to the interface. So this is SDS, a negatively charged surfactant, being pushed to the surface of the, the solvent. And in order to get to this point where we've filled the solvent interface, we need 8 millimolars of SDS in water but only 4 millimolar or 2 millimolar of SDS in the deputectic solvents. So they are very effective at um, forcing the, the micelle, the surfactant, to the interface. Um, we can also see that uh, we can form micelles in the solution, and interestingly, they do something completely different than what they do in water. So I said before, when you put surfactant in the solution at low concentration, it forms spherical micelles, but when you put it in the deputectic solvent, it starts off slightly quite long and you increase the concentration, it gets longer. And then as you increase the concentrations more, it goes back to being spherical. So this is a bit weird. And we think it might be due to specific interactions between the head groups of the surfactant and the um, ions that make up part of the solvent. Interestingly, if you add some water, now you can actually go back in the other direction. So there's a competition here between water solvating the head groups of the surfactant and the ions in the solution actually interacting with the surfactant. Um, that enable us to actually control very well the uh, size and shape of the micelles. We think that that's a very uh, likely thing to help us with the templating um, interactions. So watch this space. The other problem that we have, though, is I said I was really interested in understanding the interaction between the polymer, uh, the, between the sphacter and the, the silica, and we're very limited by the um, resolution that we have in small angle scattering. We can fit this uh, micelle, and I've drawn a nice um, thing with, my, with molecules and everything there, but we just fit it to a blob. And that doesn't give us very much information about how the uh, materials actually interact at the interface of the micelle. So in order to get more information, we've started to look at wide angle scattering. So if you look at the small angle scattering, it stops here at about 0.5 Q. 
If we go to the wider angles, we can go all the way out to 20 inverse angstroms, and this now gives us much, more, much better resolution measurements um, for the, the materials that we want to measure. So um, the problem here, though, is if we only have one pattern and we're actually trying to fill, fit a system full of two, uh, 64 different surfactant molecules, that's not a lot of information on which to anchor our fit. And so we need to use uh, neutron contrast instead. And so neutron contrast uh, is a way of uh, hiding information from parts of a structure. So if I have a structure here, which is some glass rods in my container, I can see those glass rods because light interacts with the surfaces of the glass rods and reflects back into my eyes. If I use a liquid that has a refractive index very similar to that of the glass, I can actually make the glass rods apparently disappear in that liquid because now the refractive index of the, the liquid and the refractive index of the rod is very similar and so I can no longer see the light reflecting off the surface of the glass rods. There's a few too many bubbles in there. There we go. So you can see that it's now much harder to see that there are rods in that solution than it was previously. So in the same way with neutrons, we can replace um, hydrogen with deuterium and these two uh, atoms scatter uh, neutrons very differently. And if we have parts of our um, system made up of things which have hydrogen or things which have deuterium, if we put it in D2O, for instance, we can hide the deuterated head groups in this particular surfactant micelle. Or if we put it in H2O, we can see the core um, is, is now um, the same and we see only a ring shape for the heads. So we can get multiple different patterns from these systems um, simply by changing hydrogen for deuterium without really affecting the chemistry and the self-assembly properties that we have in these um, solutions. So this allows us to actually have enough data to fit um, these very complicated models. Um, but now we are actually in the realm of, it looks like that movie's not going to work, um, of molecular modeling. Uh, and so we're now uh, doing a lot more work um, actually building uh, molecular models in order to understand the scattering patterns of these materials. Um, the next step, of course, is changing the counterions. And we can see that if we move the counterion to uh, a different um, species, then we can see changes in the shape of the micelle and where the counterion is binding on the surface of these micelles. And interestingly, of course, the whole point of this was to understand silica templating and see if we could see those little coated micelles that I put up in the 1996 slide. Unfortunately, when we added a complex silica ion to that solution, we got something completely different. It seems like the silica doesn't interact with the surface of the micelle at all. So all the interesting stuff perhaps going on somewhere else in the solution. And there are plenty more um, experiments to be done to resolve exactly what's going on here. So two more quick things before I finish. Um, why are surfactants interesting? Surfactants are also, of course, major components of our cell membranes. We call them phospholipids, um, and there's a really complicated set of structures and, and molecules that are, um, of course, part of the cell membrane, um, including membrane proteins, which are the um, species that are responsible for a lot of transport between inside and outside of the cell and cell communication. And if you're um, building a therapeutic molecule, you're probably building it to target one of these membrane protein um, structures. Problem with membrane proteins is that actually uh, getting a detailed measurement of their structure is very difficult because they only like to be in their proper folded active state when they're in the membrane. And so the question is, how can we remove them from the membrane and keep them in their folded state? So we were approached by some biologists who really wanted to understand the fundamentals of this system. They'd found a polymer which, when they threw it in with the cell membranes, cookie-cut little disks out of the membrane. And if that cookie-cut disk happened to have a protein in it, it would cookie-cut the protein along with the, the lipids around it. So this is a, a nice system with a commercial polymer. If you take a lipid suspension, just vesicles, it's cloudy. You throw in the polymer. Within a few minutes of shaking, it goes clear. And that's an indication that you've formed structures that are small enough they don't scatter light anymore. So these are the nanodisks. Um, so we were looking at what happened if you used a bunch of different commercial polymers. Well, physical chemists don't like to do that much synthesis if we can avoid it. 
Um, but the commercial polymers have very wide polydispersity. And although you can see some correlations here between whether or not they actually form disks, specifically the styrene to maleic acid ratio here has to be bigger than 2.1, the size of the disks that we were getting out is completely random. And so we wondered whether or not that was perhaps due to the fact that these polymers are very polydispersed. And with the assistance of my colleague Gareth Price, who's very good at making polymers, we used raft polymerization to uh, make some very narrow polydispersity materials and showed that we can actually um, make the nanodisc now proportional to the polymer size. So there is definitely a size-related um, aspect to this, this self-assembly. We've also been very interested in how these things interact and because we can actually now make the polymers ourselves, we can make deuterated polymers and that allows us to use neutron reflectivity to probe the difference between a lipid layer at the surface and a polymer coming up and interacting with that and we can show that uh, with time we can see the polymer coming and um, stealing some lipids from the interface and look at the, the variations of the interaction with the charge on the lipid surface. And the final thing I briefly wanted to mention was a far more applied system. Now, I've been talking about soap and water for the whole lecture, and you might think that I've actually skipped the major application of surfactants, which is actually in cleaning, and you use every day in your dishwashing and your um, shampoos and, and hair conditioners and things. And so we, um, surfactant production actually is, is of, of the order of 40 billion tonnes per year, um, and a large part of that um, is actually used in products such as uh, um, shampoos and, and um, sunscreens and uh, gels where a lot of the surfactant is there because it makes the thing thick. So when you pour your, your shampoo into your hand, you don't want it just to run through your fingers. If you had a very dilute surfactant solution, it is very low viscosity. But if you have a highest concentration surfactant solution, it's much thicker. But that surfactant is not needed for the cleaning. You only need a small amount of surfactant for the cleaning. So if we could replace the large amount of surfactant with something else that's actually going to thicken the solution, then we could uh, get rid of, make it much cheaper and it'd be much more environmentally friendly because surfactants do, do, do tend to have a very detrimental impact on the waterways. So we wanted to look at cellulose-based materials. Unilever uh, actually came to me as part of a um, TSB-funded project to try and understand the fundamentals of what interactions are going on in these materials that allow them to be useful for rheology modification. And um, the material that we're interested in using is partially oxidized cellulose nanofibrils. So if you take sawdust, for instance, and break it up a bit, you have these fibers, but if you partially oxidize them using a tempo-based oxidation here, you can put a charge on the surface of the fibrils, which allows you to break down the cellulose into uh, individual nanofibrils that are about five nanometers wide and, and several hundred nanometers long. And because they're charged, you can disperse them in an aqueous suspension, whereas the original cellulose is too highly hyd hydrogen bonded in order to disperse easily. So looking at the partially oxidized cellulose, the um, researchers at Unilever had noticed that if you added in an anionic surfactant, then you got this nice increase in the gel strength um, with uh, the anionic surfactant, but if you use a non-ionic and uncharged surfactant, then you don't really have very much effect on the rheology of the suspension, which suggested that there was something a bit weird going on because you have a negatively charged fibril and a negatively charged surfactant uh, making the solution thicker. So I was asked to understand why does an anionic surfactant gel and negatively charged fibril. So we had a few ideas. Maybe the micelles were cross-linking the fibers somehow, forming a, a micelle that spanned between them. Or maybe there was a, a um, sort of depletion flocculation mechanism where there was a volume-filling aspect of the micelles and they were repelling things. Or maybe we were just adding a salt because if you add an anionic surfactant, of course, you also add the counter-ion at the same time um, and the positively charged sodium counter-ion would negate some of the charge on the fibril. So again, we turn to neutron scattering, and again, we're using this magic method of making things disappear, but keeping the chemistry. So here we have a deuterated surfactant micelle, oh, sorry, a deuterated uh, water with a hydrogenated surfactant micelle. We can see the scattering from the micelle in the red curve, this big bump here. If we hide it by deuterating both the surfactant and the solvent, then we can see that we can only see the cellulose fibers, and the cellulose fibers here match exactly a solution of cellulose fibers which has no surfactant at all in it. So that the micelles are not perturbing the, the network of cellulose. And we could also show that if we measure the concentration at which micelles start to form in these systems, 
the, if, we, if the surfactant was sticking to the fibrils, we'd have to add a lot more surfactant before we'd start to see micelles. And it's essentially constant as we add. It changes a very, very small amount, and it actually goes down rather than going up, which is what we would expect if the surfactant was sticking to the fibrils. So we find that the micelles don't perturb the, the network, and so the, the most logical explanation for this gelation behavior um, is the fact that the two things are negatively charged, therefore they're repelling each other. There's a bit of impact from the um, counter-ion neutralizing the charge on the fibrils, and that has allowed for some rational uh, formulation of um, new, new personal care products using this uh, more green rheology modifier. And this has now evolved into a much larger project involving gels with uh, cellulose and starch. We also work with people in Brazil, in Rio, on using these uh, same fibrils now as pickering emulsion stabilizers, and we're looking at the effect of, of incorporating either an insecticide or a sunscreen into a pickering emulsion stabilized with the oxidized cellulose nanofibrils and some silica particles to see if we can actually extend the length of time that they live on your skin so you don't have to reapply them quite so often. So that brings me to the end of my talk. I hope I've uh, described at an accessible fashion some of the research that I'm particularly interested in, in studying. And uh, by particularly important idea is that by gaining a very fundamental understanding of the interactions that we have in these systems that we can actually gain very detailed control over the self-assembly and use that either in a very academic sense or in a very applied sense. And also by understanding the fundamentals in whichever field you're in, for me, there's been no real need in the end to choose between physics and chemistry and biology because I get to work on all of them. So I'd like to thank a number of people. Of course, the funders first who funded a lot of this work. I had a very productive sabbatical at Lund University um, funded by the Organizing Molecular Matter Consortium. We do a lot of uh, beam time, of course, at ISIS, ESRF, Grenoble, ILL, NIST and other places and in the future at the European Spallation Source once it gets some neutrons. Um, and so we'd like to thank them for the beam time and, and the support of my students. Uh, we have industrial collaborators who were first involved in the TSB grant and Unilever and Crota are now also involved in our work on, on cellulose and starch. Um, European Science Foundation and uh, EPSRC jointly funded a lot of this work. So I'd like to thank them. I'd also like to thank, of course, my team of uh, PhD students and postdocs that I've had over the years. There's photos of a lot of them there from the very early stages to the current group, still missing some of the new people. We haven't got a new photo yet. Um, and of course, academic visitors who've also contributed to the group over the years. And finally, I'd very much like to thank my collaborators, uh, both within Bath, um, there'll be a number of you who can see your faces up there, and people in Sweden, um, people at the facilities, people in Rio, uh, and um, uh, collaborators in Italy, Birmingham, um, UEA, etc. So I'd very much like to thank all of them for being, um, bringing me interesting problems and collaborating with, with me on their solution. And finally, of course, I need to thank my parents. It's traditional. Um, but really, they have been a big support over all of the uh, moving around uh, over all of the world. They're still in Sydney, um, so they're going to have to watch this on the video. My grandmother, who was particularly supportive um, when I was at high school, she'd always wanted to be a geologist, but um, young girls in the early part of the 20th century did not become geologists. So she was very supportive of a career in science. And of course, finally, my husband of, well, 21 years, I think it is. Um, <laughs> he's been putting up with me um, and, and uh, supporting my every uh, career change and, and um, research efforts over all of that time. So thank you very much and thank you for listening.